unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Thamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindusan Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. This week, the Indian government revealed that India's economy expanded by 5.4% in the third quarter of the current fiscal year. This was well below the market expectation of 5.9%. This means that India's annual GDP has been further revised downwards, raising fresh questions about the health of the Indian economy at a time when global headwinds are starting to pick up. To discuss where the economy stands today and the risks facing it, both at home and abroad, I'm joined today by the economist Sajid Chinoy. Sajid is the chief India economist at J.P. Morgan and one of the most respected voices on the Indian macroeconomy. It's a pleasure to welcome him back to the show. Sajid, thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Bernard. Lovely to be back. So before we get into the nitty-gritty of the GDP print and inflation in kind of India specifics, we are speaking at a time of pretty stunning global uncertainty. We have, of course, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which has led to a spike in oil prices. I read today that I think oil prices have surged over 7% to their highest level since 2014. We've seen commodity prices in general have shot up. More generally, you know, markets are also very concerned about the risk of global inflation. Let me first maybe ask you about these global risk factors, what are the most significant ones in your mind as they relate to the health of India's macroeconomy? Uh, thank you, Bill. And this is a very important point to start with. You know, it almost seems at some level, uh, economic policymakers around the world can't catch a break. You know, 2020 was the year with the uh, biggest uh, contraction, uh, in an order of magnitude higher than the global financial crisis. Just when we got used to that, 2021 was the year of you know very sticky inflation. Uh, and just when markets were getting used to the fact that uh, central banks around the world may need to raise rates aggressively in 2022, we have upon us this large geopolitical shock. I think there are many transmission channels to the Indian economy, but it's very important to separate first order effects from everything else. So you know, there's a direct trade impact to Russia and Ukraine, which is small. There's the indirect trade impact from slowing global growth, given high uncertainty, given supply chain disruptions given an oil shock, there'll be a financial channel through capital inflows and, and financial conditions. But I would argue all of that is relatively second order. The first order effect for India will be higher commodity prices and in particular, rising oil prices. So at JP Morgan, we now believe that crude prices could average $100 a barrel this calendar year, uh, 2022. And remember, they averaged $70 a barrel last calendar year. So for a country like India, which imports almost 85% of its requirements, a $30 increase in crude prices, if in fact it does fructify, is a very large negative terms of trade shock. We estimate that you know, if crude does average $100 a barrel, that's about a 1.3% of GDP negative terms of trade shock. In other words, we'll be spending another 1.3% of GDP just to have the same net oil imports as we did last year. If you add the impact of coal, this number could get closer to about 1.5% of GDP. So that's the kind of headline uh, adverse terms of trade shock that could emanate from what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. Now, uh, uh, think of this as a, as, a, as a supply shock. So this will impact growth, inflation, and the current account simultaneously. 
the growth impact will depend in part on how this uh, shock is distributed between the government and the private sector. It's important to point out that the government cut excise duties last November, and so in effect has already absorbed about a third of this shock, about 0.4%. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, I know there'll be a clamor to uh, for, for excise duties to be cut again, but it's important to appreciate the trade-offs here because what will matter when computing the growth hit is uh, what the marginal propensity to consume is of different actors in the system. So if the government were to cut duties further, the opportunity cost of that is less space for more expenditures. And if you take a agnostic assumption of a fiscal multiplier of one, it means every time the government cuts duties, you'll have a commensurate loss in spending. Now, if in fact the hit is passed on to the, the, the private sector, to households and firms, the propensity to consume on average tends to be less to one, less than one, you know, typically 0.7 for households and, and corporates. So the trade-off is going to be the larger the hit the government takes on the fiscal, the larger will be the hit to growth, but it'll protect inflation and inflation expectations from rising further. And that will be the balance that the government will have to achieve. So uh, let me just kind of rewind a second, because you mentioned a set of assumptions that we were operating under in the pre-invasion world. Now we're in the post-invasion world. The finance minister presented next fiscal year's budget on February 1st. And I think it's fair to say it was received reasonably well. We'll get into that a little bit. But what do you think the government was assuming to the extent we know at all about oil prices, right? Because that is always a critical variable in thinking both about the current account deficit as well as your fiscal balance, as well as growth. Do we have a sense of what the kind of baked in or priced in assumption was? You know, it's hard to get specific assumptions, but I think it's fair to say that the, at least the market consensus around the start of the year, or end of last year, was $80 a barrel seemed to be the fair price for crude for 2022 barring interest like what we're seeing. So I would assume somewhere between 70 to 80 is what the government was assuming. Now, uh, just a quick point on the budget. Uh, um, you know, I think uh, one feature of both last year's budget and this year's budget has been extreme conservatism on budgeting tax revenues. And we made this point after the budget that the realized tax buoyancy in the year that's ending could be, you know, around 1.5. But on that base, the tax buoyancy that's assumed for next year is closer to 0.4. So at least the good news is there were buffers built in on the revenue side and the tax side for eventualities like this. And that means the government does have some space to take on the hit uh, from an oil shock, for example, without necessarily cutting expenditures that were budgeted. So, so based on what you've just said, you know, Put yourself in the shoes of the finance minister or the prime minister. I want to get a sense of the policy options and the trade-offs that India is facing, right? Because we have seen now a prolonged slowdown, right? That predates COVID. It could go back all the way to 2016. You had demonetization. You had the GST. You had many other shocks to the system. Um, there was a sense that finally... Finally, we've emerged uh, from this pandemic. It may not be fully over, but 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 it looks like the, you know the the animal spirits are kind of gearing up, and now we're hit with the shock. At the same time, we're getting some pretty worrying news already uh, about inflation. Right, that's not an India story; that's a global story. Um, retail inflation has hovered around the six percent mark. It's in the higher range of the inflation target 
that is set by India's Reserve Bank. So if we could maybe just focus on these two dynamics, right? How are we to think about the trade-off between these two objectives, both of which are important, not just for the economy, politically as well, right? I mean, the government wants to create employment and wants to build infrastructure, but, you know, there's the old saying that, you know, the price of onions helps to determine uh, the fate of elections. And so inflation is a, is a pressing concern as well. How do we think about these two things? Great question, Milan. I think, I think let's sort this out into kind of two horizons here. I think the near term horizon is what should be the optimal policy response to an oil shock, for example, and then talk about kind of what the medium term policy mix may look like. You know, the fact is when you have an, a persistent adverse supply shock, there are no easy options. Uh, you know, that's a very difficult trade-off for policymakers to meet. So let's just go through the three elements, fiscal, external, and monetary. I think on the fiscal, as we kind of pointed out, um, the trade-off here is going to be, uh, do I buffer uh, retail prices from going up by taking on some hit on the fiscal? Uh, there, of course, the growth hit could be higher because essentially I'm cannibalizing on potential expenditures. Uh, but in so doing, I'm at least preventing inflation and inflation expectations from hardening further. Or do I pass this on uh, to households and then use the fiscal space that I have to make more targeted transfers to the bottom of the pyramid to buffer them from this oil shock? right? And uh, Again, there are no easy, right answers, but my sense is some middle path approach uh, may well be the right one. Another fiscal trade-off will be, do I you know, absorb all of the costs this year or do I push some of this out into the future years by essentially running an even larger fiscal deficit? So I don't cut expenditures at all. Whatever my shortfall from revenues are, I let the deficit widen. The problem with that approach is in an environment of heightened global macro uncertainty you know, a negative borrowing shock will push up risk premium in the markets. Uh, so I think on the fiscal, it's probably going to be the first debate is going to be how much do I take and how much do I pass? I think the second policy choice is perhaps more straightforward, which is in the external sector. Because what you're going to see is the current account is going to widen. Um, capital flows may slow because of tighter global financial conditions around the world to all emerging markets. And so you might actually see some pressure on the rupee to depreciate. Now, that's a good thing in the sense that the equilibrium exchange rate will be weaker when you're faced with the negative terms of trade shock. So the new equilibrium for the rupee should be a weaker rupee when you're faced with you know, oil at 100 or 110. And therefore, we should not fight that depreciation. That is what economists call letting the rupee depreciate will, will generate what economists call expenditure switching. Right. So essentially, you give exports some help, you make imports more expensive. And you use the rupee as a shock absorber to bring the current account deficit down uh, to more uh, manageable levels. Now, expenditure switching is also expansionary because you're reducing imports, you're doing a domestic substitution to domestic production, you're boosting exports. But it could all be inflationary because a weaker rupee means you're importing more uh, foreign inflation. So, so I would argue that the weaker rupee is perhaps the textbook classical prescription, which India should not fight. We should let it happen gradually. So there's no panic. The RBI is sitting on a huge watch chest of reserves. So let that happen gradually. But then the third implication means uh, uh, is that if I was already sitting on sticky inflation, as you alluded to, headline and core, uh, number one, commodity prices are higher. Number two, the rupee is weaker. Number three, 
all that would argue for monetary policy to start normalizing. So the bottom line is this new equilibrium in this post-oil world will have to be uh, possibly higher rates, a weaker rupee, and a distribution of the oil shock between the fiscal and the private sector. So Sajid, before we go further, you know, there's been a lot of concern about the lack of private investment activity in India. What role does it have to play going forward? The fact is we're still below that pre-pandemic path. Um, and the point I've been kind of banging on the table with is if you look at GDP and break it down into its constituents, C plus I plus G plus X, we need to be realistic here about private consumption and private investment. If you look at you know the telltale signs in the latest GDP print, it's that private consumption will take time to recover. Private investment, the good news is there's been significant deleveraging of, of, of private sector balance sheets. Corporate debt to GDP is back to the levels we saw in the early 2000s. So the private sector is ready and able to invest. The problem is demand because utilization rates you know, are in the mid-60s. So there's a very different problem because for many years, we used to speak about the twin balance sheet problem. Now, the constraint to investment was balance sheets of the financial sector and, the, and, and corporates. That constraint is not binding anymore. The binding constraint today is demand. But if private consumption will take time to recover and private investment will take time to recover, then G and X will have to do the heavy lifting. Now, X becomes more uncertain given all of what we just spoke about, which means government spending and government spending on infrastructure, in my view, will have to drive growth over the next two to three years. I think the government's got that part uh, exactly right, that it'll have to be infrastructure-led spending. And then hopefully over time, you create jobs to spur in private consumption and you hopefully crowd in private investment. Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. Sajid, I think with the C plus I plus G plus S, you all put us back into our freshman college macro 101 <laughs> courses. Uh, let me just kind of delve into something that you just talked about, which is the latest GDP print. In uh, a note that you've circulated, you have pointed out that um, this was a disappointment relative to market expectations. Uh, but you also say, look, this was the quarter where we expected to see a meaningful reopening of the services economy. There was all of this residual pent-up demand for goods during the festival season that should have given a fill-up to growth. I'm trying to understand what went wrong, right? Um, so why is why does demand remain depressed, right? Well, this came out in a lot of the budget post-budget conversations. Do you, do you focus on the supply side? Do you focus on demand? Uh, I think it's fair to say the government sort of emphasized more the supply side, but, 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 but we keep coming back to this issue. What's, what's the missing element here? So again, if we go back to our C plus G, uh, G plus X uh, kind of equation as a starting point, the reason that I'm a little bit more cautious about the prospects of private consumption uh, is this employment, right? So, um, uh, remember, a lot of the private consumption that occurred in the last five or seven years before the pandemic was driven by households running down savings and taking on debt. 
Now, that behavior is okay in the good times, but when the economy slows or you're hit by a large shock and you've got lots of future uncertainty of jobs and incomes, um, then it's, it's very unlikely that households will run down savings further or take on more debt to finance consumption. So really, for me, a prerequisite to consumption picking up is a jobs recovery, is an employment recovery. And that's going to take time. You know, we've spoken about the scarring to employment. Uh, you know, if you look at Enrega data, things have gotten better, thankfully, over the last four or five months. And this is the Rural Employment Guarantee rural Program. Guarantee scheme. But even as of February, the, the seasonally adjusted demand for uh, Enrega is about 25% higher than pre-pandemic levels. If you look at private surveys and look at what the employment to uh, working age population ratio is, it's still a couple of percentage points below where we were when the pandemic started. If you look at the RBI's employment outlook a survey within consumer confidence, you know, households still worry about future employment. So my point is that let's not be surprised that private consumption is not picking up in a hurry because private consumption will pick up when there is job certainty, when there is income certainty. And therefore, if I look at a pre-pandemic path for consumption, right, what should the counterfactual have been? it's still about 12 or 13% below. Now, this is where I come back to the physical infrastructure push because in the third year of a recovery, any balance sheet stress is going to look more and more permanent. So giving a household three or six months of income support will not change uh, those perceptions. What, what, what will change behavior is a perception that my permanent income prospects are improving. And the only way you can deliver that is through a job. So I think job creation becomes the starting point. And, I, and, I, and, and what you see in the GDP data, to your point, is I think more worrying for me than the services economy was the goods economy. Because what you're seeing is things kind of peaked in March of 2021, but then have plateaued and slowed, which suggests to me a lot of that initial recovery was simply pent-up demand. And once pent-up demand is exhausted, momentum is not as strong. But that should not be surprising when you consider you'll need the job creation before you can drive more sustainable consumption growth. So, you know, you have been saying this for a long time, right? You have said uh, pretty consistently that India is experiencing significant scarring in two ways. One is in terms of labor market employment, the other is in terms of private consumption. Uh, you talked a little bit about the labor market metrics, uh, obviously unemployment, uh, NREGA usage uh, demand. But but what do we look at? What should we look at? I should say when it comes to private consumption, right? We don't have official government data on this. Uh, there's there's a long backstory there. We don't have to get into. But needless to say, it's not available. What are the metrics that you're tracking to see whether and when we get an inflection point on private consumption? Uh, it's a very good question. So I think you know if you look at the very high frequency data, Milan, look at the monthly data. What we pay close attention to is the industrial production where you get both the production of consumer durables and, 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 and uh, non-durables, FMCG goods. Uh, and those are still not back at even pre-pandemic levels. Uh, so when those begin to recover more consistently and, and robustly, that will be one starting point, uh, starting of an inflection point. The second, I think, would be to look at the bi-monthly surveys that the RBI comes out with. These are urban surveys. And their households are asked, what is your perception of spending contemporaneously, but also one year out? And I think the one year out is the revealing number. 
uh, right, that what we've seen is the one-year-out perception remains relatively depressed, which ties in with the fact that households are perhaps perceiving a permanent income loss and therefore believe permanent consumption needs to be marked down. So when those one-year-ahead perceptions begin to climb and rise uh, and inflect, I'd be far more comfortable then that something is changing with household balance sheets and household jobs and household incomes, that they're getting more confident about the future and therefore they expect at least future consumption to pick up. So on a monthly basis, I'd look closely at the IP data, notwithstanding all of its volatility, durables and non-durables. On a bi-monthly basis, I would look at the RBI Consumer Confidence Survey. On a quarterly basis, I'd go back to GDP. But when we look at GDP private consumption, keep assessing where it is compared to a pre-pandemic path. We're about you know, 12, 13% short of that. Three months from now, one year from now, is that gap getting closed? And what is the pace at which that gap is closing? These are the things that I would look at. But I would say these would move hand in hand. If the employment data begins to look better a year from now, my sense is uh, that will be followed reasonably quickly with uh, a consumption inflection as well. So the key for me is jobs. So, uh, Sajid, this may be now somewhat irrelevant, but uh, but it links back to our earlier discussion about the FISC, right? Uh, after the recent budget was presented, many economists, um, I think there was a consensus that said, look, uh, one of the things that was missing from this budget was a sort of medium-term pathway for fiscal deficit consolidation, right? We didn't really necessarily see that. Um is talk about that now on the shelf, given the current crisis and the uncertainty? Have markets essentially kind of priced this in and given the government a long leash? Or are you concerned, in fact, this is a very present day risk factor that we need to take seriously? I think I think it's, you know, we're, we're, we're in the midst of heightened uncertainty. So at some level, it's hard for the government to make firm commitments you know, two, three years down the line. At the same time, this is precisely when risk premium tend to go up uh, and markets need some kind of transparency. So I actually agree that reiterating a credible medium-term consolidation plan allows the government more latitude and flexibility in the near term. If markets can be convinced that this is what the deficit and debt path is going to look like three years from now, then the government can take, uh, you, know, uh, you know, can take some, has some more leeway uh, this year or next year. But I think the broader point, Milan, is I think when we look at fiscal metrics now, uh, the deficit path is should be subsumed by debt to GDP. Ultimately, the challenge of most emerging markets in a post-pandemic world is debt has ballooned. How do you first stabilize debt and then bring it down? Now, as an aside, nominal GDP is going to be you know, 17, 18% this fiscal year. Next year, given what's happening, we may well get 13% nominal GDP. So at some level, that helps our debt dynamics. Debt to GDP will benefit from at least two years of high nominal GDP. I'm not for a moment suggesting we should inflate our way out of debt, but I'm saying you get this kind of some benefit in these years. The, the larger point is it's a very delicate balance because to stabilize debt to GDP, uh, I need both things to happen. I need the denominator to be around 10% of GDP. So nominal GDP has to be about 10%. And I need the primary deficit to slowly come down. So if India can ensure that medium-term growth is not compromised and you get nominal GDP consistently of 10%, then debt-to-GDP actually stabilizes and begins to come down even if the pace of fiscal consolidation is not as aggressive. So the key is to kind of protect and preserve medium-term growth prospects. Having said that, I also need to bring the primary deficit down. So it's a very delicate balancing act 
uh, that's needed to stabilize and bring debt down, which is why I actually say, you know, asset sales become very important because in a way they allow you to have your cake and eat it too. All of us agree we need more spending on health, more spending on education, more spending on physical infrastructure for the reasons I mentioned, public investment. So in the next three years, how do I, how do I undertake those investments so critically needed for the economy and at the same time bring down my fiscal deficit? And the only way to do that is to actually focus on the revenue side. And there I would argue in the next year or two, tactically to do as much as we can in asset monetization and disinvestment. But then let's not forget, over the next three to five years, we also have to focus on revenue reforms. We have to focus on uh, you know, further rationalizing GST rates, expanding the base, getting agreement between center and states. We need to do direct tax reform. So there's a whole focus. There's so much focus on deficits. I think the focus needs to be on how do you raise revenues to bring deficits down without slashing much-needed investments to, uh, that the economy needs. Okay, Sajid, you, you, you uh, foresaw where I was going to go next in this conversation, and it's precisely to this issue. And I want to just get a little bit deeper here because um, I remember reading notes from you for years ago where you had been advocating that the Indian authorities engage in what you call asset swaps, right? So basically, you need to commit to significant asset sales of public sector units reinvest those proceeds into high quality productive spending on infrastructure, public goods, and so on. Now, to its credit, the government has made commitments on disinvestment. It has privatized Air India. It has announced a so-called national monetization pipeline. So how do you think about progress on this front? I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of uncertainty it's had to contend with in pursuing this path, but how would you rate what's happened in the last year or two on the score? So I would say we, we've made a start. I think Air India was an important start. I think the fact that the government is going ahead with LIC is important. But and this is the Life Insurance Corporation of India, exactly, right? Exactly. And, but I think you know, we've just gone down this road. I know there was an asset monetization plan laid out as well last year. These are very good early signals, but we've got to keep walking down this road because that process has just begun. Now, one challenge that may crop up is markets may become very volatile, right? Oil is higher, geopolitical risks, the Fed, uh, the Fed, you know, maybe raising rates aggressively. And I think we should ne- not get too hung up when we're thinking about privatization or disinvestment on trying to time the market perfectly because there'll never be a perfect time. You know, we tell households, have a systematic investment plan, put some money in every month. Sometimes you'll win, sometimes you'll lose, and on average, you'll be fine. And I think we should think of that as a kind of a systematic disinvestment plan, where we almost commit to having a calendar of disinvestment over the next two or three years. Some may do well in the market, some may not hit the peak of the market, but on average, we'll be fine. Because I think um, uh, trying to time the market has, a, has an important opportunity cost. If you keep pushing these out, the opportunity cost is you're delaying investments into infrastructure health, education, and the job creation that comes uh, 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 with it. Uh, uh, so, so I think, A, it's necessary. B, good good signals to start with. But C, we've just begun on what needs to be a long road ahead. And it might get complicated by the volatility of markets, um, given all of these precipitating factors. Uh, just a quick follow-up with that. I mean, surely one of the barriers to what you're saying has, is risk aversion, right? And concern amongst bureaucrats that, look, if I time this incorrectly, 
I could be accused of undervaluing what are essentially the nation's assets, right? I mean, so that's been a constant uh, sticking point in many of these plans, hasn't it been? This idea that you don't want to be accused of undervaluing your national, you know, assets. Which is why I think, you know, institutionalizing a framework where we're going to not, you know, uh, try and get the best price, but essentially say, listen, this is the universe of assets we have. This is the time horizon we're going to do it. And we're not going to focus on just maximizing price here. Because remember, the benefits of this are also significant productivity increases, you know, when, when ownership changes hands. So this is not just about revenue maximization. This has to be seen in a broader context that allocative efficiency of the economy increases when, in fact, the private sector can run some of these assets better. So I think the way uh, to protect against that risk aversion is to be transparent, is to institutionalize the framework, is to have a three-year framework, a three-year timeline, and then say, you know, we'll win some, we'll lose some. But right. on net, the certainty of that has multiple benefits. Uh, and I think that perhaps that's the approach. Easier said than done, but that's that's how I would think about that process. And you have a Same pre-commitment reason. in place. Pre-commitment. Same thing for oil prices. What I've been saying for a long time is, you know, we should be safeguarding against these huge swings in oil prices. And one way to do that is to start hedging oil prices in international markets. Now, again, if you wait for the perfect time and the perfect hedge price, we'll never get that. So it has to be, again, a framework that says over the next three years, we'll start with small quantities and gradually build up a hedge program. I think Mexico has it in the opposite direction. They're a big exporter. So to to, to reduce volatility on their budget, uh, they export, they hedge in the other direction. We need to hedge as well to say, again, the idea is not to optimize the price. The idea is to reduce the volatility. So, you know, so we're not in a situation where the budget is planned on 75 and we, we, we confront $110 that particular year or vice versa. So again, it has to be an institutional framework where, you know, where the incentives are aligned correctly. So, Sajid, let me just wrap this conversation up by asking you a final question. And I, I asked Roshan Kishore of the Hindu Sun Times the same question in our post-budget episode, which is, what is your current assessment of India's trend growth rate, right? Where do things stand today? What, in your view, is really needed to nudge that back to the level where we would like it to be? Uh, great question, Milan, but one that's very hard to answer in the middle of, uh, in the middle of uh, uh, you know, uh, so much uncertainty, pandemic-induced, geopolitical-induced. I think what's easier uh, is to understand what needs to be done. Uh, you know, in the next uh, three to five years. Uh, We had done, uh, we'd written a paper last year where we looked at total factor productivity growth, TFP growth. This is what economists say is kind of the the residual growth, which was a huge contributor to India's 7-8% growth uh, that, you know, that occurred in the first decade of this millennium. And what we found is, you know, over the last 10 or 12 years, this is not a recent phenomena, TF, the contribution of TFP growth has been slowing. And when we tried to assess what the underpinnings of that were, uh, three variables uh, popped up. Uh, One was public investment, infrastructure investment. The second was the financial sector and how well the financial sector would intermediate savings. And the third was trade openness. So I would argue that we all know about the second generation factor market reforms, land, labor, power, you know, that's almost tautological. But I would say tactically over the next three years, given that political capital is finite, 
um, we should use that, uh, you know, to have a big infrastructure push, which is financed by asset sales to try and get this asset swap that you referred to. We need to be working on the financial sector. The constraint today is demand. But when demand picks up, what we don't want is for the financial sector to be the binding constraint on growth and not finance the growth because that will force firms to go offshore. And that's the last thing we want in such an uncertain global environment. And the third is to, you know, um, the, I think the case for uh, unilateral trade liberalization is still very strong, despite uh, where the world is moving. And so we need to remain open and kind of appreciate, again, that import tariffs and also export taxes. So I think if we can just, for starters, do those three things, I think that will be a, a very good down payment in, in boosting a medium-term growth. My guest on the show this week is the economist Sajid Chinoy. He is the chief India economist at J.P. Morgan. If you're not following what Sajid is writing and what he is saying, you are missing out on uh, important insights about where the economy is and where it might go. Sajid, uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and to read you. Thanks so much for taking the time. Absolute pleasure, Miller. Thanks for having me. Grant Thamasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HD Smartcast original and is available on hdsmartcast.com, India's fastest growing podcasting platform. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, visit our website, grantthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Caroline Duckworth, Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff J. Pranada is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.